From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has three new leaders tonight. The new deputy director is Nitin Natarajan. He joined from Avantis Federal. He's worked at several federal agencies in the past. NextGov reports Eric Goldstein is the new executive assistant director for cybersecurity. And David Mussington is the new executive assistant director for infrastructure security. The Air Force's inspector general will start a six-month review of the service's race and diversity issues. The Air Force's acting secretary, John Roth, chief of staff, General C.Q. Brown, and the chief of space operations, General J. Raymond, ordered the review. The work's a follow-on to the Air Force's December 2020 racial disparity review. A new set of data ethics principles is in force at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Acting VA Undersecretary for Health, Dr. Richard Stone, says the new principles will let the agency take a, quote, proactive approach to data management and privacy. FedScoop reports VA will expect its partners to follow the principles, too. State and local governments have access now to login.gov from the General Services Administration. The secure authentication platform will allow a single sign-on for more government services. Nick Sinai's senior advisor at Insight Partners, former deputy chief technology officer, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Nick, welcome. It's good to see you. This seems like something that should be a big deal, and I'm not sure why. Why is this a big deal, Nick? Hey, Francis. Well, the reason it's a big deal is digital identity is a big deal. Um, being able to authenticate and, and identity proof uh, is hard. It's hard for local and state governments. It's hard for federal agencies. And so to the extent that the GSA and Technology Transformation Service can make it easier for states and localities uh, to ease the pain for, for end users who are trying to access benefits, uh, log into to, um, local and state websites, uh, that's a good thing. It strikes me as potentially complicated that, because of the way that this will be used. It's not as simple as I'm going to create an account with uh, GSA for accessing something that GSA offers and then be able to use the same thing in another part of GSA. If I, you know, I live in, in Rockville, if I, if I have access to this eventually through the city of Rockville and they're using my information there, that sounds really, really complicated to me. Is that, am I thinking about this the wrong way, Nick? Well, it, it can't be complicated for the end user. If it, if it becomes complicated for the end user, then it's not gonna work. Uh, but it is complicated behind the scenes. Um, the login.gov is, is a mix of uh, open source technology, custom technology, and commercial technology. And it needs to be provided seamlessly to, to other agencies and the states and localities in a way that makes it easy for the end user to uh, uh, log in and, and to, to prove their, their identity. And then when they come back to, to easily authenticate. And so, yes, there's some complicated uh, uh, questions of, of um, privacy and, and um, federal regulation and so forth. Uh, this, I think this is governed by the, the Intergovernmental Cooperation Act and OMB Circular uh, uh, 97. So there, there's a fair amount of, of behind the scenes legal work that had to uh, happen. And in fact, I think this is, is, is initially being piloted with uh, states and, and local entities that have ties to federal programs. So it, it's not for, for every uh, locality uh, just yet. 
Uh, and the complexity that I was referring to is exactly that, Nick. Uh, one of the things that TTS has been diligent about has uh, been providing seamless experiences for end users. And uh, the complexity, it strikes me, is all of the kind of the guts of it that you just described. What I think is also makes this a big deal is this points to the maturation, doesn't it, of the technology transformation service itself. This is exactly the kind of function that I think was envisioned when TTS initially stood up. And now it strikes me this kind of thing is the realization of that. I think so. Uh, GSA and is a business-to-business -business agency. It serves other agencies, and, and it should be able to serve state and, and local agencies too. Um, and TTS, uh, their 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 core uh, ability is around um, digital technology, and so they absolutely should be able to to provide these kinds of services. Uh, and it, and this isn't the only um, shared service that they offer. They also offer out.gov, for example. Um, and so, you know, these are these are important services. I would say that that they have to be built uh, on modern technology and use use the best commercial technology. And they have to make it easy for for the the other agency, uh, the other government. Um, because if it's if it's ultimately harder to go through GSA than it is to do it yourself, then there isn't a lot of value. But if, if GSA can, can make it easier on the compliance, on the regulatory side uh, for the, the uh, end agency, then there's, there's value there. Uh, you're correct, uh, Nick, that this is not available to every federal or every state and local government. Uh, GCN writes uh, that the, uh, the functions available to select federally funded state and local government programs what in evaluating uh, this part of it should GSA look at and what should the local jurisdictions look at to determine whether this is ready to scale? Well, I think the ease of integration. So they've, they've set up a uh, developer sandbox and, and um, there, there's an open question of, of how easy will this be for uh, a locality to integrate? And I, I suspect uh, it, it will be um, fairly easy or as easy as integrating um, authentication and identity proofing services can be. Um, uh, but this is something that we should all be looking to see how well uh, both GSA and, and those, those local agencies do in, in integrating the technology. And then the other piece of this is, you know, is this a great user experience? And I think this is something that we're all going to be looking at. Login.gov has, has had uh, some success and some growth over the past few years since, since really getting going in 2017. I think that they, they're getting close to 30 million users. And uh, last year, I think they had something close to, to uh, half million uh, daily users. Um, so, you know, there, there's some good growth here. It's, it's used in, in USA jobs in, in a number of um, SBA programs uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so this, this, this is promising, but we'll have to see how it, how it plays out. Nick, we have about 30 seconds left. Is there an appetite, do we know, at the state and local level to receive, to use shared services the federal government provides? I think the, the localities, uh, states and local governments want to use modern digital services. And they want to use those from great commercial providers and they want to use them from, from shared service providers if they're going to get uh, great value and, and great service. And so there's some benefits in going, going through login.gov and, and those have to uh, compete with with great commercial services and so ultimately we'll see how this rolls out this year
Nick Sinai, thanks very much. Up next, the Department of Homeland Security's efforts to stop violent extremism. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how tracking grant data better can help the agency root out domestic terrorism. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Department of Homeland Security works to counter violent extremism through a grants process. The Government Accountability Office says the agency can do more to document the grants process and make sure it distributes awards equitably. Triana McNeil is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at GAO. Triana, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I read from your report, the Department of Homeland Security followed the Office of Management and Budget Guidance for announcing the 2016 Countering Violent Extremism grant program and reviewing applications. That statement sounds like there's a but coming, is there? There is a but. Uh, so we looked at how they announced, how they uh, reviewed, and then how they selected the grantees. And initially in their announcement, they followed all of the, the OMB guidance. They were very clear about their priorities. They were very clear about eligibility criteria. And they are very clear about how they would review and select grantees. The issue started when a new administration came in and they added additional selection criteria. And that's okay. The DHS secretary has discretion to do that. But they did not amend the announcement, nor did they put a public addendum out there so applicants would understand the new priorities and selection criteria. And in turn, revise their applications to be competitive. You write so transparency in, is an issue here. Um, you write in this work, uh, in 2017, DHS awarded a total of $10 million in CVE grants to 26 grantees for a two-year performance period. Um, and and the, the, the crux of this is, as you write, DHS can't clearly demonstrate that its award decisions were based on the process described in the grant announcement. Is that the disconnect here, Triana? That that is the disconnect. We had a number of conversations with the program officials just to try to understand what process they used and how it differed. Um, and we didn't find that they broke any laws, but what we found again was there was an issue with transparency. It took too many discussions for us to make heads or tails of how they did their selection process. So we recommended that they write this down and then they need to clarify in their announcements in the future um, how they're selecting these grantees. You also found an issue in the feedback that DHS got, it appears. You write, DHS didn't obtain the necessary data from grantees to evaluate the overall CVE grant program. When you say to evaluate the overall program, is that to determine if the thing works at all or if the particular programs that they initially granted money to worked or maybe both? Yes. So at GAO, as you know, we want to know what the public is getting for its money. And DHS could not tell us that. Uh, DHS left it up to the grantees to fill out a quarterly evaluation plan, but they didn't give them any specific things to submit. So when you step back and you try to put all of that information together, a lot of it was inconsistent. And so it was difficult to really see what has been the impact of this overall grant program. And then a number of grantees didn't submit any information and so DHS can't speak to each individual grantee's performance either. 
So is the recommendation that you make, it, it, the report that you have here says uh, t that uh, DHS should take steps to ensure that grantees collect and submit data on project performance. Would you like to see the, the data that DHS collects be uniform? And is that possible given the different natures of these programs? So there's five focus areas and DHS can make it uniform enough to where they can compile it, assess it, and determine if the overall grant program is working as intended. Uh, but they also need to be looking at each individual grantee and they need to use this information to decide if the program needs to be adjusted at all. What, so tell me about those five areas that you just laid out. Where are they, mm -hmm. where are they specified in the original authorizing legislation or in the program that DHS developed? Where do they come from? So that's something that DHS came up with. It was outlined in their announcement and it was very clear. So things like um, developing and uh, community resilience, things like job training for at-risk youth, and then training and engaging the community. Those are things related to um, building trust between the community and government and law enforcement. So all of these things are outlined in that original announcement. And the reason that that's useful to know is it sounds like those are all things that are measurable, that there is there that it would be reasonable to be able to collect data for. Right, Triana? That's right. That's right. And originally they had wanted to make sure that those five focus areas, I talked about two, but there are five of them that all of their grantees touched on an array of those, so there was coverage among those five areas. They should be able to compare and contrast. We have a little bit less than a minute left. It, it, should this be easy data for DHS to be able to compile and, and, and understand? So it's never easy to compile outcome-oriented information. It's easier to compile outputs, right? The number of people that you serve, the types of services you provided, even that is a positive step forward that they can tackle pretty easily. Triana McNeil, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to that GAO report at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, pricing reform at the General Services Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the benefits for new policy for procuring emerging technology in government. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Two core elements of contract negotiation may be holding up effective government procurement of cutting-edge technologies. Changing them has the potential to realign the way the government buys things like cloud computing. According to Roger Waldron, the president of the Coalition for Government Procurement, he's writing about seeding the schedules cloud on the coalition's website. Roger, welcome. It's great to see you. What does that title mean, seeding the schedules cloud? Well, it's the idea that... Uh that streamlining the schedules program, reducing barriers to entry, uh, reducing, you know, essentially 1980s procurement policies from a program that's trying to respond to 21st century requirements can enhance access to commercial innovation, especially in the cloud arena, um, and support customer agency missions. What are the barriers to entry that exist today, Roger? 
Well, the price reduction clause um, is a huge barrier barrier to entry in the cloud space. It's just a, it's a barrier entry across the schedules program. Yeah, it's a oversight mechanism that ties pricing to commercial transactions. It's and it, and it forces contractors to to restricts their ability to compete in the private sector and creates administrative burdens in terms of trying to track and manage that and also risk associated with compliance and, and potentially missteps in complying with the, the clause. It truly is something that um, has its origins in the 1980s when the market was much, much different. The schedules program was a closed program, uh, limited number of contractors and limited number of customers. Um, you know, and now the program reflects the commercial market with thousands of contracts, you know, thousands of customers and trying to respond to commercial innovation and changes. The price reduction clause is, is a static tool that kind of puts you in a place and tries to create cookie cutters situations where you're trying to compare a, one requirement, especially in the service arena, to another requirement when you should really be focusing on how to best meet that requirement the flexibility and offering a solution rather than have to look over your shoulder and say, well, what did I do for that customer? And if I did something different for the government, I could get myself in trouble. All right, so you're the professor and I've been the student over the years, Roger, and tell me if I got this right. The price reduction clause, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not reading off anything. The price reduction clause ensures that the government doesn't pay more than a commercial customer would pay. Do I have that right? And if so, is the nature of that, is the idea of that desirable? And if so, how do we replicate that without the, the, the burden, as you put it, of the price reduction clause? That's essentially what the clause um, provides, uh, that you do track against commercial customers. Um, and what that does, if you're a commercial firm, you have to think about what am I offering my commercial customers and how does that impact my price? Um, and again, it's it, it may make sense in a closed market where you know there is an ongoing competition at the task order level, where pricing is much more static. But the schedules program, to its credit, um, you know, it requires competition at the task order level. Agency-specific requirements vary; uh, they vary from commercial requirements. And trying to compare one to the other in that context, I think is a, it's a losing proposition. It doesn't add value. And GSA is even, um, when, they, when they implemented, when GSA implemented uh, transactional data reporting, they took a look at the effectiveness of the price reduction clause. And in their own analysis, they, they found that the vast majority of, of pricing changes and reductions have nothing to do with the price reduction clause. They have to do with the market itself and competition. What kind of setup would remedy this, Roger, or is removing setups entirely the solution in your view? A good start would be to eliminate the price reduction clause, eliminate the commercial sales practices format, which is really the idea of companies presenting who my best customers are, what, what type of prices I offer them. In the cloud space, you're really talking about requirement to requirement and different pricing models, depending on the unique circumstances of a business uh, and, how they, and how they use their IT. Um, it also depends on variables in the market and pricing, and pricing changes rapidly in cloud space. So what you wanna have is, is a flexible contract at the, at the top level that allows uh, agencies um, to craft their requirements and contractors to respond to those specific requirements. What the, 
the CSP and the price reduction clause do, they, they're a static point in time type uh, mechanism that doesn't adjust to the flexibility of specific requirements and changes in the general market itself. I grant that you uh, believe and write in this piece that the uh, government would be the biggest winner, the taxpayer would be the biggest winner, but in industry, who would be the winner um, by removing what you call these barriers to entry? Is this good for the big companies or is this good for small companies that are, they right now maybe can't compete as well with some of the legacy companies? It, it would be good across the board, and I'll just focus on small business for a moment. Small businesses, you know, their margins and, and their resources are not the same, obviously, as large businesses. The price reduction clause and compliance regimes like that, you know, directly impact small businesses because they don't have the resources to be able to manage that and comply with it. It creates an unnecessary uh, barrier to entry, um, and it limits, like, you, we're all... Oh, everybody's talking about new entrants and non-traditional contractors. The price reduction clause limits access to the federal market of, of those type of firms. So I, I think it, it would benefit the economy as a whole. Um, and, and fundamentally, too, the government, as a condition of having a government contract, should not be saying to con restricting contractors' ability to compete in the private sector. And that's fundamentally what, that's bad economics. That's bad procurement policy, and that's fundamentally what the price reduction clause does as well. Roger Waldron, thanks as always. Great to see you. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Roger's blog post, govmatters.tv slash resources. And if you missed any of our programs, they're on our website, too. To get a preview of every show, you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.